0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole
1: my village. I know where they're taking your clan.
0: Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
2: Together to talk about all the
0: things we used to do The laughs, the passions, the little Sebastians, the pets we fell into And we're putting it all in a podcast Then we'll send it up into the sky We're calling it Parted in recollection Come on
2: Welcome, welcome to Parks and Recollection on a Saturday recorded session. I don't know when you're listening to this, but just so you know, we're doing this on a Saturday. That's how into it Alan Yang and I are. That's
1: how much we love you. That's how much we love the listener.
2: Um, Anyway, I am one of your hosts, Rob Lowe. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday, Rob Lowe. How are you? I'm so good. Um, It's Saturday, so I'm moving a little slow. Um, But hopefully nobody will be able to notice that when they... uh, Listen to this.
1: Yeah, I just housed some breakfast tacos from home state. So uh apologize if I'm sluggish. I just ate a bunch of breakfast tacos.
2: We're going to get to do a scientific experiment then because I did not eat anything. Okay, great. And, and my my wife was like, you can't do that. You can't just run out of the house. We're going to see the dynamic between a hungry man and a very full man on this episode. Let's see how that works. It's going to be riveting. Um, what, what do we got today? We got
1: a good one, right? Well, speaking of food, we got one called Sweetums, mm. classic app, classic middle of season two, ep, episode 15 of season two aired February 4th, 2010, written by Alan Yang, that's me, directed by Dean Holland. Um, this was the third episode of Parks I ever wrote, and uh, it felt like it was in some ways the first normal one, normal-ish one, because... The first one was first season, and uh, the second one was a very, very wild one, guest starring Fred Armisen called Sister City, which uh, you know we've, we've talked about previously, um, which was a very, very weird episode. And this one was like, oh, this is about Leslie and Ron, and it's kind of a wheelhouse, Parks and Rec, standard season two episode. So let me just describe it right now with the synopsis. How about that, Please Rob? do. Oh wait! Just are you going to put extra
2: extra sauce on this because you actually wrote this episode? Extra sweetener
1: for Sweetums for sure. Yes. Good. Here we go. The Pawnee Parks and Recreation Department heard of it. Considers a potential sponsorship deal with Sweetums, a local candy manufacturer, hoping to market nutritious snack bars to park visitors. Nutritious is in quotes, so you know they're not nutritious. Ron supports the deal as he emphasizes consumer choice over public safety. Leslie supports the deal as well until Anne informs her they are filled with unhealthy corn syrup. Leslie arranges a public forum so they can make an informed choice about Sweetums products. During the forum, Sweetums representatives screen propaganda films, highlighting consumer satisfaction, while Leslie responds by screening a 30-year-old Sweetums film which discusses how corn syrup and other snack bar ingredients make cattle unhealthy. At the end of Leslie's screening, Sweetums brings in the company's dashingly handsome CEO, Nick Newport Jr., And his kids, the forum audience cheers with excitement when the Newports give them free candy and ultimately votes in favor of the sponsorship deal. All the while, Leslie comments on Ron's unhealthy food choices like drinking too much and ordering the Turf and Turf, which is two steaks. Ron later apologizes to Leslie for having, quote, been a horse's ass. For the B-plot! Tom attempts to move out of his home after his divorce from Wendy. Mark reluctantly helps Tom with his pickup truck. The Parks Department also helps with the move, while Tom himself works very little. At the end of the episode, Tom learns that his new home has a gas leak and that he's unable to move in until Monday. Tom asks the gang to take the boxes into their own homes, but they ultimately bring in the possessions and leave them in the Parks Department office. That is the episode synopsis. A lot going on. Yeah. I knew corn syrup was bad, but I didn't
2: know why. And I learned why it's bad in this episode um, when it's, it's something that was made because it's sweeter than sugar, which is obviously great if you can figure that out. And it's cheaper than sugar, hence why it's
1: in almost everything that's bad for you. It's a very educational episode. Actually, everything in the world is like made in, made of corn. Like everything America makes is made like every product is basically corn. Like bread is part corn. Like everything's corn. Things that you don't think are corn are corn. It's like a, it's like the cheapest thing to make. So I, one of
2: the things I loved was the uh the Sweetums commercial launching the healthy uh healthy bar was it was in an, it was I think a, you tell me it looks like a frame for frame parody of a Coors commercial
1: yeah and it was like lit up all bright i remember shooting that i think that was up at disney ranch along with some of the other stuff we shot but we took a trip up there and it was really funny the guy in his vest and with his dog and you know know, uh, like splashing water in his face from a cool mountain spring like it was very it was that was really fun to shoot and this one you got to shoot like some educational film stuff and um it, it was we were all over the place and 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 you know Uh, we mentioned this in our episode with Dean Holland, but but we felt like we were kind of kids running the store because, you know, again, I was a fairly young writer and this was his second episode ever directing. And again there was no parental supervision. It was just the two of us on site. I distinctly remember the feeling. I believe we were shooting the public forum scene and we had some questions, like we weren't sure how to shoot, like literally weren't sure how to shoot it. <laughs> we were like, I don't know, should we do it this way? Should we do that? I was like, it's it's just us, man. We're just, there's no one else here. We're just, we're just doing it. And it all worked out. Deanza became a terrific director. So um, it was fun to learn with him. I love, I mean, I, I was
2: obsessed with the with the Newport family. And this is before we meet, Paul Rudd, who plays, he must be the brother of of these people, right? Yeah. Later another on.
1: another good looking uh, kind of dummy. <laughs> Paul Rudd playing a dummy in the show, but uh, oh, he's so yeah, funny. So Bobby Newport comes in later, and yeah, he did he did a ton of episodes, man. It was he, he did more than you think, and and it was really fun. I directed an episode he was in, and and uh, the guy is just a, he's a machine. He's so funny. Like I, I remember giving him notes, and he was like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, like just very friendly listening. I was like, did he even listen to anything? And then the next take, he did it perfectly, like better than I could have pitched it to him. He was just a, he was a machine, just a comedy machine. The red
2: vest got this puffy red vest. I have a thing about vests. I, I, I do. There's, they say something, um, I don't know. And I don't want to, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people right now. This is a Saturday and they're in their vests and they're like taking a walk and they got us on their, you know, fucking headphones or whatever. And now I'm going to shit all over their vest. I, I don't want to do that, but It says something very specific. There's something very, very specific about... Now, granted, it could have been worse. It could have been a fleece vest. Yes. You know, that sort of... A tech vest. The tech, yeah, that Jeff Bezos, you know, conference up in the Mm -hmm. mountains
1: vest zippered pockets i'm going to aspen for a business conference yes <laughs> and by the way right now again tons of people are definitely wearing v- vests and taking hikes and listening to this podcast you know you're in san francisco i don't want to i don't want to you know color a whole city but you see a lot of vests lot of in vests. san francisco in, in the bay area just lot, like walking around in just in like fact if of- they
2: were making the streets of San Francisco TV show today it would be the
1: vests of San Francisco. Yes, there's no it, question about it. And and also the kids run in with vests. Uh, that's happening in this episode. Like the kids run in with an identical vests. Vest. Oh. Yes, it, it was. It was it, it. the The episode was pretty much built around the concept of making fun of people wearing vests. And then, then we built
2: it from there. <laughs> well, I would go but, even further. I would say that the episode is built under the concept of making fun of the general public because the people of Pawnee are complete idiots, and it makes me laugh that they're just like, yay. Kid! They're just so funny that like that Leslie lays out this beautifully articulated, you know, reason why this is a bad thing. And, and then the Newports go, I don't know, look under your seats and there's candy under the seats. And they just go, yeah. And they just it's so
1: great. It's so funny because it, it, it really is kind of a seminal episode in terms of you know, determining what these town halls are going to be. You know, we had done them previously, but this one we started to go further and further. And the way Dean cut it also was like, you know, just jump cuts between different, uh, different, you know, people in the public. And we're like, oh, every one of these can just be a wild joke and, and it doesn't really matter. Right. And it's just, there's no continuity or anything like that. So um, it was fun and it was fun to write those. We would just write, you know, as a writing staff, we would just pitch a ton of them and then decide kind of what to do on the day and, and, and kind of give them to random people. And, and then we, t- we, we brought back our favorite actors from these public forums because it would make sense that the same weirdos would come to all of them. So that was really fun too.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask how you cast the, the, you know, regular folks of, of Pawnee and that makes perfect sense because, you know, you're, you're giving one line to, to somebody and you, yes. you you never know how they're going to, whether they're going to have game or
1: not to you get on the set. Yes. And and eventually we had some guys kind of recur, like we had this guy, Mel Cowan, who would come in and he was he would scream. I mean, he came back again and again. <laughs> it's like, he was a really, really fun. And, and also sometimes the writers would come in and do it. So Mike Scully... Uh, one of the writers started appearing in episodes as just a weird townsperson, and his name was Pearl for some reason. <laughs> so he he would come back and do do stuff. But uh, yeah, public forum was
2: really fun in this one. The discussion, the, just the political discussion of Ron Swanson's thing, and if he's like uh, an individual should have the right to consume whatever they want in their own bodies and the government should not be involved in that conversation.
1: You know, the elements of Ron Swanson, obviously people think about the manly stuff, the woodworking, the meat, all that stuff, but ultimately originally he was conceived as of as a as a libertarian. That was a really important part of his character and so this was kind of focusing on that side of him where he was like, yeah, I hate government, I hate government, I work in government, but I hate government and they shouldn't tell me what to do and that was, you know, that was one of the challenges in breaking this episode was We knew that the framework was this kind of theoretical, ideological disagreement between Leslie and Ron. But then it's like, how do you make that emotional? How do you make that a personal story? Because, you know, look, there have been great works of art made that are just appealing to the head. But we generally wanted to make episodes that appeal to the heart. So um, it was kind of combining that into the idea that she was trying to manage his business about his personal life. And so it wasn't just government. It was Leslie trying to micromanage Ron. And that was kind of a metaphor for government micromanaging citizens lives so that was kind of how we broke it open yeah it felt really timely yeah it still is still is i and I, I laughed when i when i when i turned it on the first thing was this cold open where uh tom is trying on uh outfits for, for <laughs> justin um and it really took me back because some of those outfits aziz and i had uh taken a trip to universal studios and we walked around universal city walk and and uh if for those of you who know it's like a uh it's kind of like a nightmare mall it's like it's like yeah. it's like a Buca de Beppo and like all, you know like <laughs> Bubba Gump shrimp company and like a Margaritaville <laughs> or whatever um, and so there's these street vendors and uh, a couple of street vendors they included a shirt with a sort of uh, that lights up when you talk that so it has little like sound level bars and then there was also another vendor that had a belt buckle that had messages you could program on it digitally and so we're like these are so dumb we've got to buy these and put them in the show and so we had the prop department buy a bunch and then we just put them in the show I think you made them up and this is early on in the show right this was season two so um, yeah a belt buckle that says what's cracking um, a perfect accessory for Tom Haverford. So what's um, cracking? Yeah, yeah, you use your personal experiences and put it into the show. <laughs> it made me laugh. It's so,
2: it's so perfect. I thought you couldn't have made it up, and turns out you didn't.
1: It was, <laughs> life is always life is always real stuff is always the best it's always that was also like this 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 is very minor but the the, the 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 uh the newport's dog we named this a golden retriever we named him shoelace because that was the name of my friend reed's dog and shoelace would come over i was living in a house in uh hancock park with like five other writers it was like a writer flop house and <laughs> We we had this pool in the backyard, and uh, Reed and Shoelace, his dog, would come over, and Shoelace would immediately jump into the pool every time. So, in honor of Shoelace, we named uh, the Golden Retriever in this episode after him. <laughs> I'm a big believer in and like
2: people should spend more time on the names of their pets.
1: Yeah, I think, or
2: they should either spend more time or less time.
1: Yes. I also like when the pet has, sometimes I like it when the pet has a human name, right? It's like. The, oh, that's me. It, my, it really my it's just like, oh, this dog's named Greg. It's like,
2: what, what? like well, is... I'll do one better. Um, you know, John Lovitz, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So John Lovitz likes to name his dogs after people who he knows. And he has a dog named after the great producer, Jerry Bruckheimer's wife, Linda Bruckheimer. So he, his dog will be like, so, and and he says it, so I can say, oh my God, there's Linda Bruckheimer taking a shit in the backyard again.
1: That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. I I once dated a woman who's uh who who named her cat after her dad. So it was very confusing. I was like, do you want dominion over your? Is that what's going on here? Like you need to you're working out some issues with your cat. I also <laughs> like really
2: stupid names. Like I I had a dog once named Ed Ed Chocolatehead because he had an actual head that was chocolate covered. He was a German Shorthaired haired pointer and their heads are always a different color. So I just loved, it was so dumb. Ed, Ed, chocolate head, come here. And people are like, what's wrong with you?
1: It's a very long name for a dog, too. It is a long name. You put name. it on its collar, he needs four collars to put, fit the name on it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our I stole my village.
1: I know where they're taking your clan.
0: Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: Uh, again, this example of people using their personal lives, we used uh, some of Nick's uh, woodworking knowledge because you know, he brings in that harp and he says, I used a bandsaw, a spokeshave, and an oscillating spindle sander to make this harp. And it's like, yeah, he just, we didn't write that. We just like, we put like, yeah, Nick make up some woodworking shit and took a trip to his actual wood shop. And, and that's why we kind of incorporated. And then we ended up shooting there for a different episode. So that, that's coming up. Um There's also a a trip to the library, which I think we we later did whole episodes, but there's a little journey to the library in this one. I didn't know you could check out archaic Super 8 movies at the library. I learned
2: that in this episode.
1: I always love in a movie, like old movies, where the characters go to the library and like looking in card catalogs. And then I really love microfiche and Joanna just put in the <laughs> chat, but it is the, cause I remember like this, is how old I am. Like I remember going to the library and like looking at microfiche of old newspapers to do research for a project. And it's like for, for anyone under the age of like 30 microfiches, you, you put, you load these things into a magazine that, that magnifies the image like really greatly. So you can store a lot of newspapers on small, you know, little, little, i don't even know what they're Didn't, called. wasn't but, there a crank on it that would go, like, i mean it would, sounds like we were born in the 1800s like anyone does. listening to this that we're like this like we're speaking in a very modern medium the medium of podcasts and people are probably <laughs> listening on airpods with their fucking phone but like we're talking about like the dewey decimal system yes. and microfiche which is uh <laughs> but but it's real man that with the struggle was real and, and wasn't that long say, ago
2: Anytime you're saying the word microfiche, it's so good. It it makes you feel both like it's a clown word, but it also is very like, you know, like you're in the CIA at
1: the same time. I just in think of, microfiche. like, a, a John Grisham. Like I, I, f- I always felt like I was in the Library of Congress and it was going to zoom out in those, like, large concentric circles in that room where you're studying and, like, I'm going to crack this case. But in reality, I was just writing, like, a history paper or something. It's
2: very all the president's men. Yeah, man. Pelican brief, like, all that shit, man. It was <laughs> microfiche!
1: <laughs> you got to have the chanting guys stand up and yell that in the town uh, Yeah, microfiche is a... Yeah, <laughs> never forget it. Never forget it. Uh, another classic... First appearance of DJ Roomba in this episode. Um, I mean, very uh, one of the weirdest things I ever got into into the show. Um, I, I wrote that in my first draft and. I, Roombas were a little newer, right? So this was back when Roombas were new. And by the way, it's not a phone on top of the Roomba. It's an iPod. It's that's the, So it was like, it's, you know, this is a decade ago. It was like an iPod. And I remember Mike reading the the, the writer's draft, uh, my draft of the script. And he was like, I, ha- I don't understand what this is at all, but I'm trying to trust you on this. And so he's like, let's, he asked the other writers and they were like, yeah, it's funny. So we built it and it worked. It was like a Roomba with, a, with an iPod on it. And he was like, well, I don't understand it, but it, people seem to think it's funny. So it got in the episode.
2: It's one of my favorite things in the history of the show. It just is. It's one of my all-time favorite things. It makes me so happy. I don't know what it is. It's like seeing a dolphin in the wild. It just it releases pheromones. When I see DJ Roomba, that's
1: the way I feel. It's whimsical. It's very whimsical. It's also funny when it's it's it's. He's so sad when Jerry breaks it. It's like he, it's,
2: he was like a child to me. Yeah, he's
1: he, he like a son. Jerry, to what are you doing? You killed DJ Roomba. You killed then, DJ Roomba. And, and then the ultimate, really, the, the true mark of insanity is in the tag of the episode when we did the ghost of DJ Roomba, and we were he's playing black eyed peas on a nonstop loop, oh. and that's like it goes to it goes to credits. But that is that is when you know the lunatics have taken over the asylum. Is when we allowed. That to happen in the the episode, you (laughs) you know, as we do
2: this, like you said the other day, you're discovering my taste. Yeah, that's your favorite shit. (laughs) Dude, that ghost DJ Roomba thing is it for me? It is the it's the most genius thing
1: ever. I mean, first of all, the way he looked, it's so cute, the way the little it's, ghost looks. It's really cute. It lived up to exactly what I was picturing. I was like, it's going to have a little sheet, and it's going to have little, t- two little eyes. And then I, I think Dean also mentioned this when he was on, but he, you know, we did a shot from between Jerry's legs, and that was like, that was when we realized the concept of this being a documentary was out the window, <laughs> and we're like, we're just going to shoot best. this regular. Yeah, yeah was, we're just going to shoot this regular. So the ghost a, of DJ Rumbo broke the documentary.
2: Yeah, the ghost... Yeah, which is interesting. That's an interesting thing out there. Like, at what point have we crossed the Rubicon to, like, just going for it? And now we know what it was. It was the between-Jerry's-legs shot to the ghost of DJ Roomba.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, you, you actually feel like... Uh, the number of talking heads ends up decreasing over time, over the course of the show, and, and and it just becomes, you know, again, like you said, we mentioned The Office at the beginning of this episode, it, you know, it just became more and more different from The Office, and I thought, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing, you know, as it became its own show.
2: Would you say that The Talking Heads not only decreased, but they went from more, more story-driven, albeit comedic, to just flat-out jokes? Because for me, by the time I got on the show, it felt like The Talking Heads were an amazing opportunity pretty much just to be funny
1: yeah and i always kind of felt this is just my own personal taste but i always felt like using them for exposition or you know we you know to give information out or you know in the writers room we call that laying pipe you know just like get the yeah. pipe out of the story it's just a little lazy. You know, it's like cuz it could have put one of the art like part of the artfulness of writing is trying to get exposition across in scenes, but in this format you can just have a character say to camera what's happening, which is <laughs> you know like I like you can always do we look we did it. Trust me, we did it a lot. But ultimately we 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 had kind of rules where we didn't love to do that and we also tried to not necessarily have a character just say how they're feeling in the talking head cuz that also feels like a little bit of a cheat and we always thought it was a little more elegant to have them you know, first of all, just do a joke, or second of all, say something that hides how they feel but implies the opposite or something. You know, I always felt like... And that goes... I think that's fairly decent advice for scenes in general, right? Like, have characters be a little bit cagey about how they feel so they're not just, well, they're just saying how they feel. Of course, the network will always tell you, like, can you just have them say how they feel? <laughs> and it's oh, like, God. that's not that's not good writing, man. It's That's the uh, it's a, it's a network note type thing, but yeah.
2: I always wish... And look, I don't mean... It's such it's just an easy target to bash networks and, and yeah. their creative people because, you know, actually, I always feel like whenever you get a network note, however bad, for the most part, there's some germ of issue or tr- not, I don't know if it's truth, but there's there's a there is some reason that they're bumping on something. Now, nine times out of 10, they've given you the wrong fix. Right. And it's a little bit for me like going to a chiropractor where you go, God, my shoulder, it's my shoulder. My problem is my shoulder. And the chiropractor goes, actually, it all stems from this and it's your hip that is putting pressure on your shoulder. And the network never knows it. They always go right to the shoulder, but the problem may be something else in the script and they just don't have the sophistication or the or the ability to understand what they're actually bumping up against.
1: I, I think that's pretty savvy. And I can tell you've been in the business for a while <laughs> because it, <laughs> because it, I, I feel the same way, you know, it like, you know, I, I don't really have an adversarial or antagonistic relationship with any executives I've ever worked with. Quite frankly, I think honestly, like I've had a ton of good executives. I think I've had a lot of executives who ultimately look It's been my experience, and this is just me speaking, but they're smart people generally who want to support the show and make it great, the same as you do, right? And to me, it's just another set of eyes. It's just hopefully a smart, experienced person who's read a lot of scripts, and they just give you their thoughts, right? And that's okay. Like, that's totally okay. And I feel like I've been fortunate in the sense that it's always been a conversation. It's always been like, well, let's talk about it. And I agree with you. I Every script needs to be rewritten a million times, quite frankly, like you should be rewriting it a ton of times before the network even sees it and be prepared to rewrite it after they see it. Because I I totally think if they diagnose something again, look, it's all taste and they may be right, they may be wrong. But if there's if they say 10 things about a script, I usually am like, oh, yeah, these three or four are, are right and let's fix it. And I don't, you know, look, it's my job to rewrite. It's not like, oh, it's, not, it's gold and let's shoot it. Right. I never feel that way. So. Um, no, I mean, I, I know there's some writers out there who despise executives, despise yeah. them. I've, I've, I've I, and, and look, I mean, maybe there, yep. I'm sure there are bad ones out there, but, but I, I don't put myself in that category. It's like, yeah, it's just a smart person reading it, hopefully, and, you know, and you know, you can agree and disagree. By the way, the other thing is like, I've been fortunate in the sense that it's not a, it's not a like. Like absolute, you fix these things, you do them the way we tell them, tell you to, I've never had executives do that to me. So I feel lucky in that sense. Has there been a difference
2: in working with, um, on a network show, and then going into a place like Netflix or Hulu or streaming, or you kind of—that's really where you work at the most for the most point now.
1: A little bit, yeah. I mean, well, I feel like again, I I keep saying this over again, over and over again, because I do feel this way. I feel like I've been lucky. Like so on Parks and Rec, for instance, um, you know, obviously it was mainly Mike dealing with the network, but I've I, you know I got to sit in on some of these sessions uh, later on in the run of the show, and our exec on Parks, Lauren Anderson was phenomenal and she was really smart and just supportive of the show and she had thoughts on scripts of course but she trusted mike and greg and that was really smart because she understood, good the That's understood the, thing. Understood That's the, the show that understood the show and i believe was there the entire run so just got the show and had and had smart ideas and suggestions and was like well what if this is a two-parter what if so that was great and then but you're right once you get once you get in the streaming world i mean we felt I mean, I've now worked with Netflix and Amazon and Apple and, and all these networks. It's kind of really fun. Like when we did Master Nun, Netflix was like six employees. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. they literally had two shows when we sold. We sold when we sold Master Nun to Netflix. They had they had made House of Cards and Orange of the New Black, and that was it. And so it was a very nascent company. I remember pitching to Ted Sarandos in City Hall in like a small conference room, and they bought the show. And it's like now Ted Sarandos is worth like a billion dollars or something. So yeah. so like so but so it but but you, you got the kind of Wild West feeling, right? It's like they 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 kind of gave you some freedom. And by the way, my our executive on Master Andy Wheel, it was a great executive. Was great taste. He came over from Universal. He had worked with us at Universal and was our Universal exec. So it's kind of the same kind of guy. So um, yeah, I feel lucky in that sense. Yeah, it's
2: it's good when you know I I did a show called The Grinder, which I love. I love The Grinder. Classic it's show. It's one of my favorite things. I've it's one of the things I've ever done. I mean, I, I I I put it up there against any comedy. But you know, it it on one hand, I was grateful for Fox for putting it on because it was like. Stunningly weird show that I couldn't believe a network put on TV. So I, I you know, without them, we don't even have a show. But then, the, I don't think they really ever understood. Well, I know they didn't understand it. Um, and one of the things I loved about the Grinder was that it would open with a cold open that was the TV show within the show. And their big thing is, we ha- do we have to do those? I think we should just start the show. And I was like, "They're the most funny part." And they go, "Yeah, but we think that the audience thinks that's the show." You know, at that moment, you're 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 kind of on life support because yeah. they they intrinsically either don't understand the show or don't like it.
1: Yeah, and and it's always an uphill battle. And and to me, that note smacks of you know. You and the creative auspices of the show want to trust the audience and respect them. You know, it's like no, we trust that they're smart and they can watch a two-minute cold open and understand that's the fictional show within a show, and it's funny and they can enjoy it, and they understand that. And I think you know, respecting the audience's intelligence is one of you know the most important things to me. It, it, it's really, uh, really fundamental to making good stuff. We say that as we're talking about an episode where the people are idiots. <laughs> the entire public. No, no show has shown more disdain towards the American public than Parks and Recreation. <laughs> just, just, just show. If you're not a main character in the show, you are an idiot. absolute moron. <laughs> just like, just, you're, you you're go you're, candy. You're, exactly. You're loud. You you're barely capable of rational thought <laughs> from from how they're portrayed in this show. But but the but the main characters are lovely. They're very intelligent, smart, empathetic people. But yeah. <laughs> uh. Some t- some jokes. I just wanted to shout out. Uh, I I really just liked when uh, Leslie says she's already written a eulogy for Ron. It's called "Oh Captain, My Captain, Ron Swanson, A Swan Song," which is a, f- a phenomenal joke. I believe it was Harris Whittles. Um, you know, it's just like you do the rewrite and you get a little gem like that in there, which is which is really funny. And 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 uh, I it feels very I also, true. It feels very, like yes, it's like, so That's probably
2: not even a joke. Like I, there's a world where I could see. Sadly, someone actually delivering that eulogy.
1: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, that might happen uh, many many decades from now. But yeah, very funny. Yes. Um, Tom talks to his landlord on the phone, and I think it's Mike Scher's voice. It sounds a lot like him. So I think I don't know if he tempted in. They just left it in, and like yeah, whatever. Because that happens sometimes, right? It's like you you know you, you're in the edit, and you need so you need the voice on the other end. So you just record it yourself. You just set up a mic, and then you just record it. But I think he just left it in. <laughs> I think that's just him. So listen in. I, I mean, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I I, I think that's I think that's I think right. He
2: just wanted his Screen Actors
1: Guild health. And I know insurance. he just had yeah had, got to, had to had to get his dental, keep his yeah, dental insurance. Exactly. He's no fool. That's, that's a big thing. It's a big thing. Um, but yeah, the ending of this episode is pretty touching too. I thought Ron Swanson apologizing to to Leslie is you know we're we're building this relationship which. I think originally we weren't sure if this was going to kind of be the fundamental relationship in the show, but it ended up being such a spine for us. And so this is, this is a, you know, one of the seminal Leslie and Ron episodes as well. It was kind of like, oh, we, we get it, right? We get their relationship and, and this is what we're kind of building on in the future. So Agreed.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten, moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at
2: NJM.com. Do we want to do a, a town hall? I think the answer is yes. The answer is always yes. the answer is yes. Are we ever going to have a show
1: where we go, do we want to do a town hall? And you go, no. <laughs> yeah. I, don't I do want to do that. Like, you know what? I just want to get out here and uh, put on my vest and go for a hike, uh, Rob. So uh, oh. fuck the town hall. <laughs> just the vests. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. We're so done. We're never going to get. People in the vest are gonna spit on us. People in the vest community, it. we're a protected class, and uh, the show is uh, the show is oppressing us. By the way, I keep swearing <laughs> in this episode. I'm like, why am I swearing so much? So this sad, is so it's weird. a weekend. It's a, yeah, it's this weekend vibes. Oh, it must be the it's the it's the uh, breakfast tacos on the Saturdays. So, so apologies for swearing in this one. Maybe Schulte can bleep some of the swears. I don't. This isn't. This is a, this is the 13 and over podcast. This episode. <laughs> yeah,
2: because you know, 12 um, year olds never swear.
1: I know, right? That's no, like their favorite that. thing. No. All right, uh, let's do the town hall. Um, I was looking over a list of locations because I was like, oh, we got to figure out where this town hall is. And I noticed a park that we would use sometimes, just a name. It was called Harvey James Park. Not, again, on the theme of uh, uh, of using uh, you know your personal experiences, uh, we just had a friend named James Harvey, like me and Aisha, <laughs> one of the uh, writers. And so we just made it Harvey James Park, inverted the name. <laughs> He was like a. He went to college with us, and he became a professional football player in Finland. And he was like this kind of handsome, strapping guy. And at some point, we were like, "There's a there's an episode where Rashida, uh, and, you know, uh, Anne dates a lot of guys, and we're like, I think James Harvey should just be in the show, so we cast him in the show. <laughs> he's like, he's just like, this is so wild. We'll get to that episode, but." I think I think I might have written that one, but but yeah, he's just one of the guys she dates. He has like two lines. And we're like, I don't know how would that happen because he's not an actor. He's just a guy. Anyway, we'll do it in Harvey James Park in honor of James Harvey, a friend of mine from college. Um, and this question comes from Sheila in New York. Did the cast ever engage in actual parks and rec-type activities as a team-building exercise? Did they prune trees or pick weeds ever? And or did the writers have any team-building activities likewise? Yeah, the
2: only time I've, I've done anything like that would have been community service, you know, as court-mandated. <laughs> um, you know, I, that, that's, you know, wearing an orange jumpsuit, you know, for you know public intoxication with the Brat Pack. You know, I think... <laughs> I think, Jud- I think there was a time when Judd Nelson and Andrew McCarthy and I had to uh, dig a trench in Silmar. <laughs> Many um, years ago. You put on your orange
1: vest to do that.
2: So yeah, t- I did. <laughs> I did. And, and listen, no one can trench like uh, McCarthy. <laughs> Jesus. He's a, he's a trenching fool.
1: Sometimes I think about the stuff you guys got away, because it's a different era. You think about like... I, I feel like there was a Michael Jordan quote recently that was like, "Oh, I don't think I could have survived in this era of social media and stuff because because of the the hijinks he was getting into I, yeah. or or worse. I mean, the yep. stuff that you guys were doing in the '80s, I, it's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. I, no, it's it's
2: literally unfathomable. And that's why you see people who are in that position today um, are just hidden out. You don't you don't. Yes. It's like you don't see like you know Leonardo DiCaprio partying every. Friday at the Hard Rock Cafe. By the way, how funny is it that the Hard Rock Cafe was like the cat's meow? I mean, that it is so funny. It was though, like legit. It's like it's like one step away from an Applebee's. It sounds. I like,
1: mean, today. there's a Hard Rock Cafe. There was a Hard Rock Cafe at Universal City Walk that I was kind of making fun of earlier. It was it was like a right next to the Beppo or whatever. It's like across from <laughs> the movie theater. Like that's a Hard Rock Cafe is that now. It is essentially. Uh, but that was the cool spot. That's so funny.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's embarrassing to say, but but it, but it really was. But yeah, no, we didn't do any team building on on Parks and Rec in that way. We should have. Yeah,
1: what that have been sounds fun? fun. That sounds fun. I yeah, we didn't do any like Parks activities that the writers would go on a writers retreat before every season. So we would go uh, stay in a hotel in Laguna Niguel by the beach, and uh, we would be there for a few days and just try to break stories and come up with arcs for the upcoming season. So. It was fun. It was a fun time. We'd we uh, we'd we'd do some riding. We'd we'd have some meals together, and we'd play some like game. We'd play like celebrity together and stuff at night. So we did a little bit of that, and then later on, you know, uh, we took some trips. Like the 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 Parks and Rec writing staff went to Vegas together. That was fun. So it was a very tight knit staff. Um, we would do um, the cast
2: would do dinners together.
1: All the, yes, quite a, a lot.
2: We would do that. Um, we would do an Indian food night and. Um, I remember that in particular, but, uh, yeah, we, it was a really close cast. I mean, everybody was friends. Everybody parks and rec was the first show I was ever on where every single cast member organically was on a text thread
1: and yes. that text, and that text thread is, is still exists. It survives to this day. Yes. I've, I've heard about this group chat with the, uh, with the, uh, the cast. That's kind of fun. You know, that's kind of a fun thing that group chats are, are like the lifeblood of, 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 you know, maintaining relationships now. It's like, I find like, you know, a lot lot of my good friends are on different chats and we just communicate that way, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was good. Well, Alan, congratulations on this episode. I mean, it's got your, it's got your name
1: on it and it's
2: fantastique. How many, how how many did you, credits do you have on the show as a writer? You know?
1: I think it's something like 14 or 15. Some of them are co-writes, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of episodes. (laughs) Jesus. So good. DJ Roomba.
2: So satisfying! I don't know what to tell you. We got vests. We got DJ Roomba. We have microfiche.
1: Well, actually, we don't have microfiche. We wish we had microfiche. We'll go back and shoot another Parks episode, all centered around microfiche. My- Leslie would love it. Leslie would love oh, microfiche. Ben Wyatt she? would love it. <laughs> ben Wyatt would love. I would lo- and-, and Traeger. Trager would be down to clown. Traeger with would love microfiche because he loves almost everything. He probably loves a lot. The- just his body is a microchip, and his brain loves microfiche. So there oh, you go. Oh, there it is. That's why you
2: got the big bucks. (laughs) My body is a microchip, but my brain is a microfiche. (laughs) (laughs) It works. It just kind of works. Well, thanks for tuning in, y'all. Tuning in, that is not a good phrase. There was no tuning involved. Downloading? But that sounds so corporate. Thanks for what? What should we say? Thanks for
1: listening. Well, there you go. Thanks for subscribing. Even better if uh, you subscribe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like and subscribe
2: and review five stars, <laughs> which we do need you to do. Subscribe and review five stars um, on the on the uh, at, at Apple. I guess that's the place where everybody wants to do it. Um. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you, producer Shulte, and bye for button. Parks and Recollection is produced by Greg Levine and me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Alan Yang for Alan Yang Productions, Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn are our talent bookers. The theme song is by Mouse Rat, a.k.a. Mark Rivers with additional tracks composed by John Danik. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Parks and Recollection. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher.